let me just introduce ourselves first of all because I'm aware that most of you in the room will have not the foggiest who um, myself or my husband are. I'm Kath and this is my husband Jamie in the questionable hat. We've had some debates. We've had some debates about the hat so you can talk to him about it at the end, tell him what you think. Um, the two of us, we've been married for seven years. Um, we have, I'll just give you a little potted bio because it's good to know who people are, isn't it? Um, we have a little girl called Amelie. She's 19 months old. We're obsessed with her. So um, it will be nothing short of a miracle if we don't talk about her by the end of the seminar. I'm sure we'll find a way to shoehorn in a story or two some, um, somewhere. Um, we have another little one on the way as well. So we are well and truly in that sort of stage of life where our main question every day is, how can I maximize my sleep today? When can I get the most amount of sleep we possibly can? Um, we also co-lead Herald Vineyard Liverpool. We planted, yes, shout out to the Herald folks. We've paid them all to be here in the front rows. Um, yeah, really nice to have you guys. Um, yeah, we, so we moved to Liverpool three years ago to plant a church there. And I, honestly, I'm not just saying this, other than the sort of decision to follow Jesus and the decision to get married to each other, we would both say it's the best decision we have ever made. We are having an absolute ball. Um, any any Scousers in the room? Anyone originally from Liverpool? Yes, my friends, there you are. Um, I don't want to alienate other people in the room at this stage. This is always a dangerous thing to do at the beginning of a talk or seminar like this. Um, but we genuinely believe that Liverpool is the greatest city in the UK. <laughs> we, we love it. And if you haven't been, come and visit. It is honestly, if not the best city in the UK, the best city on earth. We absolutely love it. Um, um, but before we moved to Liverpool um, and we became sort of adopted Scousers, as we like to think of ourselves, uh, we lived for a number of years in central London. That's where Jamie and I met. So I was part of a church planting team for a church called KXC, which is actually an Anglican church um, in central London. Jamie had been here in Nottingham. He'd been studying and then he moved down to take a job in the city, in the city of London. Um, I was actually, I was genuinely writing some notes about this earlier and thinking, what should I tell you? And I was going to tell you what Jamie did, but truthfully, I don't to this day really know what he did. I never really understood his job in the city, but he had a job in the city. Um, anyway, we met at church. We had a very stop-start relationship with a number of breakups. So I'm sure someone's lining us up for a relationship seminar at some point. Um, but we had a number of sort of breakups, very, very big stop-start relationship. Um, but eventually we got married in December 2014. And a week after we got um, married, a week after our honeymoon, we came back and we felt God speak to us really clearly. It was time to move on from London and to go and train for some sort of church ministry together. So at that point, we moved out of London. We moved to um, Bristol. We sort of, we sort of lived between Bristol and Bath. Um, we were on the team at Vineyard Bath there, helping out with a bunch of different... Yes, my friends! Um, we loved it. We had a really fantastic three years there. Um, and we were also studying theology full-time in Bristol as well at the same time. So it was a brilliant three years. And during that time, about a year into our studies, we felt God speak to us really clearly as well, um, that it was time to church plant at the end of our studies, that that was what we were going to do together. We were going to church plant. So that's a little bit of our story. Um, it was a bit of a long road to choosing Liverpool as a place to church plant, but we got there in the end and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, I share you that little bit of sort of potted bio, partly because I think it's interesting, um, and to let you know a bit about who we are, but also to say um, this, that the sort of landscape of our 20s, um, me and Jamie, how old are we now? 30, 35. But the sort of landscape of our sort of 20s was really dominated by making loads of big life decisions. Like, should I take this job? Should I move to this city? Should I marry this person? That was like a particularly big one. 
Um, and I think we worked out that between us, during that sort of period of time, during our sort of 20s, we've relocated city five times. We've taken three jobs. We've quit three jobs. We've changed career completely twice. And we self-funded our way through three years of theological study. Um, but since then as well, we have really observed, so the church we lead in Liverpool, Herald, it's made up mainly of sort of people in their 20s to 30s. That's like our main demographic, people in their 20s to 30s. And I, I kid you not, most of the time I meet up with someone for a sort of pastoral conversation, a one-to-one, -one, we end up talking about big life decisions that are on the cards for people. Um, often, if it's me, I'll get into relationships. So I, lo I love to chat about that with the girls. I normally sort of wheedle it out of them if they haven't volunteered already. We chat about relationships. Um, but to be honest, even more than that, the conversations we end up having often are around things like work, calling, vocation. What should people be doing with their lives? What jobs should they take? Where should they go? These sorts of questions, they just come up again and again and again. And we've also started to notice as well, this isn't just something that's happening inside the church, even sort of questions of calling, perhaps people wouldn't use that language. Um, but outside the church, when people are in their 20s, in that sort of um, age bracket, these are the big questions that come up again and again. Um, we are leading an alpha course at the moment, Jamie and I, out of our home. And again, it's made up of people in their 20s. And week one, th there's this amazing question you ask at week one of Alpha where you say, if you, were to, if you were to meet God in person for the first time and you could ask him one question, what would it be? Um, and you go around and people give their answers to these questions. And this year, the, que the people's responses were profound, really, really telling and revealing. Um, but people said things like, if I was to meet God for the first time, I'd ask him, what am I good at? What have you made me to be good at? Um, what should I do with my life? Lots of people saying, uh, lots of questions about, am I going to, am I going to be okay? Is the future going to be okay? These were the sorts of questions that were coming out and again and again. And um we're guessing also that the reason that you're here today too is either that you have got some big life decisions on the horizon. You may be literally at a moment where there's a job offer or um, there's an opportunity to move somewhere to start a new course or something like that. You've got some decisions on the table and you're trying to ask the question like, how do I make these decisions well? What does it look like to make these decisions in an informed sort of Jesus-centered way? Um, and if you're not in that camp already, maybe you're in a moment where you're studying. So for the moment, like the pressure's off and you don't have to make any decisions because you're just in that dreamy bit of like just riding the wave of uni life. But pretty soon those decisions are becoming round too. And you're aware that they're on the horizon as well. Questions like, what should I do with my life? Where should I, I should be going? Um, so all of that to say, our hope for today is that we're going to try and provide a little bit of a map to help us navigate through what I think can actually be really challenging territory, making decisions well. Um, and we want to sort of come at it in with like a two-pronged attack, if you like. Um, and this isn't actually like particularly typical to what me and Jamie are like. We're both quite like head and heart people. Um, but for today, Jamie is going to be Mr. Head. Um, and he's going to talk about, first of all, like how do we think well about this stuff? And in particular, how do we think well about this idea of work and vocation within the call to be a Christian and to follow Jesus? Um, um, and then I want to home in a little bit later on the heart stuff and look a little bit at like some of the emotional responses that come up for us when we're faced with making big life decisions, how we respond emotionally. And in particular, I want to look at often some of the questions, those like big what if questions that come to the surface when we're making life decisions. And that will come a bit clearer later on. But Jamie, do you want to take us away with the head stuff? 
Yeah, thanks. Great. You said half of what I wanted to say, so I'm pretty much done here. Um, brilliant. Well, yeah, just to, just to kind of kick off then, when, uh, when it comes to these big life moments, I'm reminded of a phrase we used to talk about a lot at KXE, this phrase, the story we live in is the story we live out. And if you've ever been to KXE, that, that phrase gets bandied around a lot. The story we live in is the story we live out. And the, the basic idea of this is that as human beings, the way that we're wired, one of the things that we're most deeply shaped by is story, um, particularly big stories like um, why the world is here and what's our place within it. And there's this kind of competing version of this story that competes for our allegiance all the time. So there's kind of broadly, there's like culture's narrative over our lives and there's the kingdom narrative over our lives. And um, in the end, what matters most isn't so much just what we sort of say that we believe, but it's whichever of the stories we most soak in, the one that we understand the most, the one that we most resonate with, the one that we're most consumed by, ends up being the story that we live out when it comes to our decision making. Um, so um, the story we live in, story we live out, I'm going to struggle to keep up with my own slides here. So. Bear with me. Um, I just wanted to start with a little slide about this. So you can see cultural narrative and kingdom narrative, and often it looks a bit like in this slide. Um, so you've got cultural narrative on the left-hand side, and it's like um, this tends to be the really strong influence in our um, lives. It's like TV. I, I looked up a stat the other day. We're up to the average person watches 20 to 30 hours of TV a week. This is literal storytelling. Netflix and others this is literal cultural storytelling of what the world is about and how our lives find meaning within it. Uh, social media is about the same number of hours again. So it's no surprise that the cultural narrative over our life is so strong. One of the, one of the kind of dynamics of it is it's so strong that it's kind of like the air we breathe. We don't really think about the cultural narrative on our life. It's just the, the kind of the, the water we swim around in the air that we breathe. And so it's often an unquestioned thing and it's an unconscious thing. And that can be a bit of a problem when it comes to decision making. We don't realize how much we're influenced by the cultural narrative around these questions. Um, the second dynamic is the kingdom narrative, which is uh, often much weaker. And it's not because we don't believe in the kingdom narrative. But firstly, we spend a lot less time thinking about the kingdom narrative in our lives. Like maybe if we're a committed Christian, we go to church and maybe small group, and that's like two to three hours in a week. And pretty much everything else is cultural narrative. So it's not that surprising that that is often the challenge, that it has a weaker influence on how we think. And the story we live out often ends up being really similar to the cultural story that others are living out in their decision making. The second actual problem, though, isn't just time. It's that we actually don't understand the implications of the kingdom narrative when it comes to the big decisions of our life. So we, we're not actually that clear on it a lot of the time, particularly not clear on what are the personal implications of a kingdom story over my life. Like, what's my personal vision in light of the kingdom story? We're often not very clear on that. So I, I kind of wanted to say this to say, particularly when it comes to um, decisions relating to what we do with our lives, like questions of work and career and all of that kind of stuff, before anything else, um, a really important background question that we need to get clear on is what is the proper place of our work um, within the kingdom story? How's it supposed to relate to the rest of our lives? How's it supposed to relate to church? We need to move from being a bit less woolly about it to get clear about the whole thing. And we want to get to a point where we've got personal vision in light of this kingdom narrative when it comes to questions of work. And we also want to become more conscious of how the cultural narrative around this stuff has been shaping us so we can move to a point where we start to question it um, and become much more conscious of it and critical of it.
So work, life and church, that's kind of what I want to address here. I'm going to start with engaging your heads around this stuff. Bear with me. Kat's going to do all the fun stories today. I'm just going to um, bore you with some slides here. But I think this stuff is really, really important. We're going to start with looking at the cultural narrative, trying to understand that more clearly when it comes to this question of work and its place within our life and the church. And then we're going to turn to it, what is actually a slightly more complicated problem a question which is the what does the kingdom narrative say about the place of work in our lives and um Kat said we studied theology um in bristol this is actually a question that has kind of consumed me for a while like we're really fuzzy on what is the like, where does work fit into like god's work the rest of our lives what we're supposed to be doing as an active part of the church and so i actually spent a whole year thinking about this question that was my master's thesis around that so when they said you can do a seminar i thought i might as well use some stuff i've already got so um so i'm going to try and get into that and i'm going to move quite quickly so you're going to need to lean in a bit stick with me um but i think at the end of it we're going to get some helpful tools to help us think well about how our decisions can start to live out a kingdom story when it comes to questions of work and all of that good stuff so firstly the cultural narrative on this there's like three versions um going around in the west that have all influenced us firstly we've got um the kind of the modern narrative and um, this is like work as a replacement for religion and um, this is really important for us to be aware of work is perhaps the largest pillar in the modern western world that most of us have been born into uh, it's kind of been this way since the 19th century onwards we live in a culture that is obsessed with work um, there's a guy, Max Weber, who's like this famous um, like cultural thinker in the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. One of the best thinkers about what were the ingredients going in making up this new kind of modern Western society. And in his most famous book, Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, for the geeks amongst you, um, he charts this movement from a society that was primarily shaped by religion to a steady movement to one shaped by work. So work begins to replace religion. And this kind of explains why work came to be like a new morality for society, like a new spirituality for us. So it, it began to occupy the place of our devotion, um, the place where we find identity, the place where we make something of ourselves, the place where we leave legacy. Work in this kind of scenario is everything. And that's why work is often such a, a big, important existential question for us, um, particularly as we're kind of setting out on career. Then you've got like a second iteration of that. This is like what I call the millennial narrative. Um, th this is my generation. This has kind of been a well-documented thing. We were the children of radical individualism. And so we grew up under this mantra, you can change the world. And it was kind of like, um, it became like a compulsion for, for many millennials. So that anything less than world-changing work was kind of looked down on. And this is kind of a movement from work is everything to meaningful work is everything. And then you get the final um, narrative. All of these, by the way, are still influencing us today. Um, and this is, I've said modern there, that should say Gen Z. Um, the, um, the, the, third, the third narrative is like the Gen Z narrative. That's like the most recent iteration of individualism. And it's a, the focus here starts to move from changing the world to changing ourselves. So this is a narrative of work as a means to our own self-actualization, if you like or as something that, um, that, that we need to serve like our own well-being goals. So with it comes the expectation of work being immediately rewarding rather than a steady process of learning from others along the way. And so here the mantra becomes, I am everything and work exists to serve me. So th there's kind of three waves there and, and each of those, as I say, is influencing us today. That's the kind of like three-part cultural narrative. I think it's helpful for us to be conscious of when we start asking questions about work. 
So now we're going to move to um, the slightly more complicated part. Um, what's the kingdom narrative for the place of our work? And um, the reason I say it's complicated, it's not actually complicated, but it's been complicated because it's important for us to know historically um, this has been a theologically quite muddled conversation. And so there's various different movements and groups who've said different things at different points about this. And so um, I'm going to attempt um, having tried to read just about everything I can get my hands on around theology according to uh, about work to try and synthesize um, the key points here. And with the help, it must be said, of... Um, one of the great 20th century theologians, Karl Barth, not just myself, um, to attempt to try and unmuddle this a little bit for us so we can see this question clearly. So three theological perspectives on work, two with strengths but also serious weaknesses, and one that I think is actually the true and most helpful one. So first one's already up. This is like work is not important. And obviously I'm simplifying this view here, but um, broadly speaking, work is not important. And this was the prevailing view of the medieval period. It came from the belief that like, the life of a monk um, who would sit around in spiritual contemplation all day was like on a different plane to your average Joe out laboring in a field. And um, it, it was kind of prevalent in the medieval period, but it never went away. And actually, there's a modern equivalent to it today. So like many churches, and, and you may have been in churches like this, over the last 50 years, this has been true, um, have spent all of their time talking about church ministries and church programs and virtually none of their time talking about work, even though 90% of the people in church are spending 90% of their time in working environments the whole time. So this view has some strengths. is that um, it sees clearly that there's a distinction between Jesus' work which is more important than our work, right? That's the thing it's trying to hold up, and that's an important thing. Um, but it's obviously got serious weakness as well because it crowds out any kind of kingdom narrative from the sphere of our life where we spend most of our time and energy. So then we move on to like the second... Sorry, those... There you go. told you I was going to struggle to keep up with these. Um, there it is. Uh, uh, number two, work as co-creation. Um, in reaction to this first perspective on work a load of voices began to emerge that sought to elevate the significance of work in the Christian life. So famously, Dorothy Sayers, um, in her 1949 essay, Why Work, I'm sure you're familiar with it, um, said this, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter, you might have actually heard this quote before though, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Now, at the heart of this idea is this idea of co-creation. It's this idea of finding in God's command to us in Genesis 1:28 to fill the earth and subdue it, a commission to cultivate and co-create the world with God. You, you might be familiar um, with this. In this way, I guess you kind of could think of ourselves as like building the kingdom. This is... Um, quite widespread theology um, and it's definitely got some strengths uh, firstly it tries to reclaim um, I think something that we all know that the, the intrinsic value and dignity of work and it sees the potential for work as something more than that something that is part of our kingdom vocation if you like um, strengths again come on Jamie keep up number two um, uh, the, some of the weaknesses though it doesn't properly distinguish between our work and our kingdom vocation. So the, the assumption here is that our primary vocation as Christians, this is what Sayers says explicitly, what God calls us to is to our work. 
um, which, which is great. It might make some sense for a writer or an architect. It makes, it's a little bit less helpful for a Deliveroo rider or a lorry driver um, to say that. Um, the second weakness with it is it, it leans all of this weight on Genesis chapter 128. The problem with that is it doesn't really fit that comfortably with the wider story of the whole of the Bible. It's not like you read the rest of the pages and they're all referring back to Genesis 128 the whole time. And for this reason, lots of people have seriously critiqued this view. A few quick words from Karl Barth here. Um, we search both Paul's own writings and the rest of the New Testament, he says, in vain for the pas passion with which the subdue the earth of Genesis 128 has been interpreted and applied since the 16th century. But the same is true of the Old Testament. We're surely reading into the saying in Genesis 1.28 more than is actually there if we take it to imply that, the cu that cultivation is the real task which the Creator has set man. So um, in, um, this is kind of like, uh, this is the problem with that. It's, it's hard also to distinguish between this and the wider cultural narrative. Like this is, this is kind of one of the key problems with it is when you think about it sometimes you think, how is that even different to the cultural narrative of an obsession with work of changing the world through our work? Clearly it's trying to be different but it's not always that easy to tell. Um, and, the, and the final issue with it is that it, it puts a whole load of pressure on this task of work for us. If that's the way we build the kingdom, that's the way that change comes to the world, then um, it can lead to anxiety, it can lead to individualism, it can lead to elitism um, and it can lead to burnout. And so finally, the third view, which is the view I believe is the most true, the most helpful, <clears throat> is this view. It's that work has a dignity of its own because it's the distinctly human act. Simply put, it's what makes us human. It's about preserving, safeguarding, developing and fashioning human life. Um, but there's a really important difference here between this and the cultural narrative. So the cultural story around work is that we need to preserve and safeguard and develop and fashion human life because that's the way to progress. And progress is the way to our salvation. Um, but the kingdom story is that the world is worth preserving. It's worth safeguarding, worth developing, worth fashioning because Jesus is coming to redeem it, to make all things new. And there's a crucial difference between the two. One's about striving for human progress. The other's about making room for grace. And that's like the intrinsic dignity of work. And the strength of this perspective is that it, it manages to reclaim, there you go, it manages to reclaim the importance of work without piling onto it the same significance as Jesus' work. And it's not elitist. All work, however flashy or however mundane, has exactly the same dignity and value in itself. Plus, it distinguishes between our work and this wider thing that we need to be aware of, our kingdom vacation. So to summarize, uh, the kingdom narrative about the significance of our work is very different from the cultural narrative. Let me draw that together. Firstly, work is worship. It's the place where we say life is worth preserving, safeguarding, developing, fashioning because Jesus has come to redeem it. Secondly, work's dignified. All work is meaningful, however mundane. Thirdly, work should be done free from any anxiety because the salvation of the world doesn't rest on our work. Uh, you know, as it's been said, the burden is light. We're called to worship and Sabbath before we're called to work. And this is so, so important to distinguish that from the cultural narrative, which would tell us the opposite. Finally, work can be, although it doesn't have to be, a sphere of our kingdom vocation. So just as I draw some of this um, into land, you're probably thinking, where's this going? Um, I, I want to just talk a little bit about this phrase, kingdom vocation, that I've thrown out um, already. Um, let me give you um, 
a definition of this. While our work is unique to each one of us, our kingdom vocation is something that we all share in common, and it's bigger and it's more important than our work. So here's the definition for you. It's the call on each one of us to be an active member of the community on mission that is the church as it witnesses to the world about the love of Jesus. So our kingdom vocation is about our active participation in this collective witness. The mission of the church to testify to Jesus comes first. And our call, our primary call as a Christian is to be a Christian, which is to participate in that witness. And while it's true that our work isn't the same as our kingdom witness, uh, our kingdom vocation, sorry, it's also true that for s- in some cases, our kingdom vocation does overlap with our work. And again, this is, the, this is the kind of important spin on it that the second perspective was trying to get at. Here, let me just run you through them quickly. These are scenarios where the kingdom vocation, this bigger, important kingdom vocation, overlaps with our workplace, and you'll recognize some of them maybe in your own work. Firstly, it overlaps through love when our work helps to demonstrate loving solidarity to our colleagues and those affected by our work. We're demonstrating um, the love of the church for the world. Secondly, through invitation when our work provides us with a platform to invite those we connect with closer towards the community uh, that we call the church. And thirdly, finally, through reform, when our work allows us an opportunity to bring the social and the ethical implications of the gospel to bear on the concrete situations and circumstances of our work. Now, this final point, this might involve for most of us leveraging just like a limited bit of wiggle room that we find ourselves having along our careers in our industry to try, industry, to try and drive after slightly different outcomes to our work. But for a minority, it might involve a bigger opportunity that's probably going to take our whole lifetime to complete. Uh, And that's to confront systemic injustice in our industry um, or to begin to set up countercultural entrepreneurship that can pursue alternative models and practices for the industry. So there is this, this possibility within work for it to be part of this kingdom story of uh, of redemption of the world but it doesn't have to be that and actually the norm through most of history is that it hasn't been that most of the time um for some in the room though that's the call on your lives um and so i want to say that is definitely definitely important so i want to draw all this together i've said loads hopefully you're still kind of keeping with me a bit um what do we learn from all of that then all that theology all that thinking about how to think along kingdom lines, about our work and about our decisions, our life decisions when it comes to starting out uh, in work, in careers, and all the decisions that we make around that. Here are some of the questions I think we should be asking ourselves and asking God prayerfully. Here's the way I think we should engage our minds so that we live out a kingdom story rather than a cultural story in our decision making. Firstly, the essential one to begin with is what part is my work gonna play in my kingdom vocation? That's the big question. What part is my work gonna play in my kingdom vocation? And there's three categories when we ask that question that we might fall into. The first one, well, there's more. The first one, my kingdom vocation, voila. Um, my kingdom vocation is mostly played out outside of my work, right? That's the, that's the first camp we might fall into. This is like primarily our work is to make a living. And the first thing we need to hear if we fall into that camp is, um, we are not second fiddle to someone in a different camp here. This is a completely valid, dignified thing to do. If you're in this camp, as you think along the, the lines of the kingdom, um, this is totally valid, but there's also some questions then that we wanna, we wanna be asking to start turning back to this bigger, 
question of kingdom vocation. Firstly, how does my work enable me then for my vocation? What resources does it generate for, for me? Money, time, whatever that might be. What time does it free up? How can I spend these then for the sake of this bigger thing, of being an active member of the church on mission? And what are the spheres of life, if not work, where I'm going to do that? Number two, um, we might fall into the opposite camp. My kingdom vocation is mostly played out through my work. If you're in this camp, it's because there is a call on your life um, to take the witness of the church into a given industry, into a given workplace context. And if that's you, that's going to be the most significant contribution then that you're going to make as part of the community or mission that is the church. And if that's you, that is brilliant. The church desperately, desperately needs more workplace missionaries. It's an amazing thing. But here's some things to be conscious of because this is a hard call. Remember that where culture's narrative for work is rooted in individualism, I'm going to change the world, the kingdom narrative for work is always a call to participate in the one collective mission of the church. So as you respond to this call in your life, the kingdom guide would say, start by committing that vision for your industry into the wider collective vision of the church. Start to do that. That's a hard thing to do. And then ask the question, is my vision for my work really about me or is it really about playing my part in the church's witness, right? Begin to let God reshape and recalibrate our vision accordingly. And then we need to commit as well to being accountable to the church along the way, to pastors, to peers, even those who don't fully understand our specialism, our industry as much as we do, to ground ourselves in deep community, in local church from the outset. Yeah, when you're taking a job, think about how are you going to ground yourself in the believing community from the beginning. Don't figure that out later. I've seen it done. It's really, really hard. Get that stuff in place from the beginning. Don't let yourself become isolated. Look for the wisdom and partnership of other believers because it's going to be a long journey. If you're going to see that kind of change, genuine like redemption in an industry, it's going to take lots of other people. It's going to take a lot of wisdom and it's going to take you your whole life to do it. You know, it's not, this isn't like a two year project. Um, thirdly then, um, the third camp, that's probably most of us, is that you're somewhere in between the two, right? And if, if that's you, you're going to want to ask basically all of those questions to different extent, plus two more, which is what does the split look like at the moment? What does it look like in practice, this split between um, the part of my kingdom vocation played out in my workplace and the part played out in the church? And the second one is when was the last time I reviewed this with God, that I asked God, about this afresh because we live in different seasons of life this stuff moves around all the time we need to be keeping asking where is my wider calling my wider vocation to be a christian located at the moment so yeah okay so all of this matters i just want to land with just a quick story we've got a guy in our church who's amazing guy chris um those who all know chris and um he's an incredible guy he started coming along to our church um, kind of early on, he'd been out of church for 10 years, like uh, he'd, he'd ended up burnt out by church, cynical about church, and he started coming along um, after about a decade, and it was an amazing thing because it, it, it really began to sort of recapture his heart again, he began to become kind of reawakened um, to this kind of this beautiful story of the mission of the church to see, um, see change, to witness to the love of Jesus. 
Um, but coming into it, like he was a highly talented person, uh, still is, and um, you know, primarily he was a musician, so he was, you know, he wanted to be a rock star. That was like his kind of personal sort of vision. I remember him telling me that the first time I met him, and like, you know, he's he's absolute legend. He's got like skull tattoos, no joke, on his knees. Their kids called Hendrix Wolf. Like he's the real deal. They got signed. He was signed to a uh, you know label for a while. He's a really amazing uh, musician. Um, and the second thing is he had also since he started a family, been like, right, I need to earn some money, and so he'd started working in coffee, and he'd become a um, like specialism in like high quality. Coffee coffee importing for a, a company in Liverpool and so that's kind of what he was doing for a job but he wasn't really that like fussed about it, it was just like it was a stable job compared to music and um, as he caught this like this vision for kingdom vocation for this like it began to change his perspective on his work and uh, I just love seeing I, I saw him just a week ago again to catch up on the journey it's, it's just amazing like watching this played out in a single person going from an individual vision for all of this stuff for his work to a communal vision um, some things that used to matter suddenly stopped mattering to him and some things that didn't matter at all suddenly mattered to him now so in music it was like the more he caught this the more he was like this stuff doesn't matter God doesn't care about me becoming a rock star like this is about me like it, you know maybe for some people there's something in that but for for me it's just like do you know what that stuff doesn't matter I started to recalibrate it around how does this serve like actively serve the mission that we're on as a community how does this serve the church and so for him it was like I'm going to take music you know as much as it kills my ego and I'm going to pour it into worship I'm going to pour it into raising others up because I've got a lot of musical expertise um, to, to pass off to people but then with coffee it was like the total opposite this thing that he wasn't fussed about at all that he was really just doing to make a living suddenly as he caught the vision of the church he become, began to become excited about what does it look like to take then the mission of the church into that industry? And he realized, well, I don't care about just roasting the best coffee or everyone's doing that. You know, he said that to me last week again. It's like, everyone's doing that. It's like, I want it to be part of the mission of the church. And so this dream for, um, for something called Axis has just come up. This is like entrepreneurial dream. He wants to start a coffee shop where they are employing people coming out of drug recovery. Um, and he's basically using the next three years just to finish learning absolutely everything he can about the industry so he can go and do it and train other people to do it. It's just an amazing, amazing thing when we take this kind of cultural vision for work and we let it be transformed by um, the church's uh, vision. So, Kath. Um, I want us to just change tack now, just for the sort of remaining time that we've got together and home in a little bit on our hearts and look at some of the emotional responses that often come up for us when we're actually on the ground. We've got a big life decision to make in front of us. You know, some of the things we talked about, like, should I take this job? Um, should I move to this city? And we're talking primarily today about work and vocation. But I, I also think, and I will touch on this because it touches on my own story these also apply to things like should I marry this person um which is a question a lot of us will be asking as well um these are big decisions and when we're faced with them it's really common to have a whole host of emotional responses that's what I want to say up front first of all so some of us we might be faced with a big decision if this is you god bless you I am not you but you might be faced with a big decision like this and you just feel excited you're like great and you feel really excited about the opportunity the risk factor um, you just all those things just sort of get you going you feel really excited about it um, but for others of us our emotional responses in these moments are more challenging and I totally I'm, I'm in this camp you can find yourself when you've got like a big 
life decision to make, um, feeling anxious or insecure or overwhelmed or sometimes even depressed. And in, in my experience, in those moments of feeling quite anxious, certain questions can start to rise to the surface. When you're weighing up, should I do this or shouldn't I do this? Certain sort of what I call what if questions start to come to the surface. Questions like, you know, what if I make the wrong decision? Or what if I make this decision and it, it doesn't work out? And often what lies behind these what if decisions is essentially when you boil it down, it's just fear. It's fear that is lurking behind these questions. Um, and that fear can have its roots in all sorts of things. Sometimes that could be past pain that we're carrying, still carrying with us, and we're bringing that to bear on this decision. Sometimes that can be rooted in warped cultural narratives, things that Jamie's talked about. Um, sometimes it can be of like based in like a false picture of who God is and what he's like and the way that he deals with us in our lives and decision-making. But wherever it comes from, often what can happen when you find yourself with these what-if questions and fears coming to the surface and driving them it can grip you to such an extent that you get stuck and you find yourself thinking I do not know how to make this decision I'm just stuck I can't decide what to do um, and I just want to say up front that is absolutely true um, of me when it came to making decisions particularly in my early 20s that was really my experience I'd feel very anxious when I had a big decision to make and I'd be gripped by anxiety and these all these what if questions would come to the surface um, and some of that came up around work and vocation absolutely I had that as a challenge but I want to digress just briefly to talk about this because I think it's helpful just as a bit of a framework um, that the time that I got most stuck honestly was the decision over whether or not to marry Jamie um, now, I know what some of you are thinking, he's a good looking guy. Yeah, what's wrong with you? What were you thinking? Why was there any doubt? Um, but the reason that I got stuck was that all, suddenly I was overwhelmed by loads and loads and loads of these what if questions. They all came bubbling up to the surface and they were all fueled by fear. And I could not move forward. I could not unstick myself. And, and until I was able to face those fears head on, name what those fears are, and then begin to fight some of those fears with the truth. Um, and sometimes that looked like we're dealing past pain. That was a chunk of it. Sometimes that looked like rewiring what my view of God was like. And I'll explain more of that in a minute. And sometimes that looked like confronting false cultural narratives. Um, but that, that was a really painful, hard experience. It was a hard journey to go on, but it was such a valuable one. And it has taught me so much moving forward about how to tackle these big decisions that feel like daunting. Um, so what I want us to do now is just to go through a few what I think are quite common what-if questions that come up when we're making a big decision. Um, and I want to do this in, in, in a particular way by looking at what is the fear that lies behind this what-if question? What is the fear? Where has that fear come from? And then let's just take some truth and just drive it at that what if, at that fear, um, to cast out that fear and, and to prove that fear to sort of be false. Um, I feel unbelievably stressed at this point because Jamie's told me to um, do my own slides. Yeah, can you do it? Do you know what? He's only said that because I've asked in front. I've asked in front of you. But um, that was making me feel stressed for about half an hour that I would have to navigate that at the same time. Um, so, so let's just like work through a few of these questions. And I want to say these might not be your questions. That's absolutely fine if they're not. My hope is that actually this gives you a framework so that whatever your questions are, you can do the same work of being like, right, what's the question? What's the fear behind it? Where's the fear come from? And, and what truth do I know about Jesus that I can speak to this fear and tackle it? Um, so what if question number one, is, I've touched on it already. What if I make the wrong decision? 
What if I make the wrong decision? Now, other variants of this can sound things like, what if this isn't God's best for me? Um, that might have been something you grew up in church with if you were someone who grew up with the church. This idea that God has a best, he has a best plan and that you need to sort of stick to it. And But how do you know when you're making a decision? Is this God's best for me? And what if it isn't? Um, and then another sort of variation on this is if God was in this, then surely he would make it more clear. Like if really God wanted me to do this thing, then surely he'd write it in the sky and it would be much more clear than it is at the moment. Um, so I, I want to tackle this first of all. What is the fear driving this question? And where has it come from? So I think the fear boiled down is this. The fear goes something like this, that God has a perfect plan for my life. And if I don't follow it to the letter, if I don't follow it exactly, he, he might be angry with me or disappointed with me. Or perhaps he'll just be sort of become a bit indifferent with me and give up on me and sort of go along with someone else. Like we don't find ourselves like actively thinking that in our head, but that's like the underlying fear that sits behind those questions. That God has this perfect plan and if I go off it, I'm going to lose out or maybe worse, he'll sort of abandon me. And this comes from really simply a false picture of what God is like. That's a false picture in our heads of who God is and what it's like. So I want to drive some truth at this one. So if this is something that you struggle with when it comes to making a decision, I want you to hear this. The truth about what God is like is this. We know that um, the Lord has said this, never will I leave you or forsake you. Never will I leave you or forsake you. And the truth is, even if you did somehow make a truly wrong decision that took you like, way off in a direction that you shouldn't go God's promise never to leave you he's to promise to go he's promised to go with you even there he will never leave you or forsake you and um, in fact it's the opposite he's promised to look after us and provide for us Anne Lamott is this sort of devotional writer she once said this and it's stuck with me for years all fear is but the notion that God's love ends all fear is but the notion that God's love comes to an end. And it's just not true. God's love has no end. Jesus himself said, I promise to be with you to the very end of the age in all things. So the truth is God's love has no end. Now, in our story, this has shown up in loads of different situations. For me, this was a huge one when it came to getting married. What if I make the wrong decision? What if Jamie isn't God's best for me? What then? Like, what will happen in that moment? Will God just sort of give up on me and, and just choose to do things through other people because he's sort of given up on me because I've gone off the plan somehow? Um, for us also when we were deciding to church plant um, it's the, the vineyard system's amazing it, it's like so super relaxed as well so we had a chat with James Rankin who heads up church planting to say we're in we're going to church plant we were like James where do you want us to go and he was like I don't know where do you, like where do you want to go um, we, were like, we don't know um, so he was like well maybe you should just like drive around a few cities like see what you think ask God to speak to you you're both, both quite posh, so you probably won't go anywhere that much further north than Birmingham. Um, but like, just drive around and see what sort of takes fancy. So we were like so, so stressed. And we just and started this journey of like visiting cities like on our spare weekends the whole time. We like drive to a city, walk around it and be like, God, is this the place? God, is this the place? It was the most intense process ever. Um, and we'd like get excited about certain places and then suddenly like fear would grip us like, but how do we know? And what if this is the wrong place? And what if this isn't the place that God's got for us? And how do we know? And we would get ourselves in such a state. It was honestly like one of the most stressful years um, until we visited Liverpool. And actually when we were in Liverpool, we were having a slightly depressed afternoon where I think we'd seen something about the city which we were like, we don't love that. Oh, are we really going to come here? We're not sure. Um, and Jamie was praying. We were sat in, in, in a prayer and Jamie was praying and he felt God say to him really clearly, like, 
the problem is you're asking the wrong questions at the moment. All our questions were like, what if this isn't the right place? Like, what if we get it wrong? Like, all our questions were basically about the place as, as we were visiting being like a threat. And he felt like we were, sitting, we were just asking the wrong questions. The truth of the matter is, I'm going to look after you wherever you go. I will look after you wherever you go, wherever you decide. And any of these cities, they're great options. You could plant a great church in any of these cities. The question that you should be asking is, where do you want to go? Where do you not want to miss out on what I'm doing? Like, where do you want to go? And that really flipped things on its head for us. Now, this relates to the second truth that I think is really important for tackling this fear, fear, which is this. If God wanted relationships with robots, he would have made robots. He, that is just what he would have done. If he wanted a relationship with robots, he was like, I've programmed you to follow this perfect plan that I've mapped out for you. That's what he would have done. That's how he would have made us. But he, he didn't and he doesn't. He doesn't want a relationship with robots. I read this verse in Psalm 32 this week and it really struck me when I was thinking about this. I love this. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. And then it says this, don't be like the horse or mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle. Now, first reading, you're just like, what does that mean? I don't really get what that's about. The idea is this, God wants to work with us in our decision making. He doesn't want to control us. He wants to work with us. And the way he does this is by over years of relationship with us, he trains us, he invests in us, he teaches us, he counsels us so that we become good decision makers. So that we become good decision makers. So that he doesn't always have to say, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. Do that next, turn right next, turn left next. He, he, he's wanting to train us, counsel us, teach us so that we become good decision makers that he can trust. And I want to say this because I think this is really key for when you're in your 20s. This is why when you get older in your faith, when you've been walking for, with Jesus for a long time, it can seem like he starts to speak less clearly. Um, now, I just want to say a bit from that from my own story. When I was a teenager and I was asking God about like what it is I should do, I don't know. I don't know what it was like. Should I date this guy or something? I don't know what it was. It was like really clear. It was like he'd write it in the sky. And I, I got used to that. That was like how I got used to hearing God speak. It was really clear all the time. And then as I got older, that just went. And I'd be asking God, like, give me a sign. Show me. Like, what's the right answer here? Show me. And nothing. And for a long time, I thought, I've done something wrong. I've like, I must have wandered off. I must have, if there's some like secret sin in my life that I'm not aware of, or am I just completely making the wrong decision so God's completely abandoned me? No, I was just growing up. He'd invested in me. He was tra he trained me to become a decision maker. And so he was leaving me in certain decisions to make the decisions by myself. Um, Tim Keller has this, a uh, pastor in New York, he has this great illustration of this where he talks about um, it's totally appropriate for a six-year-old kid to come and say to his mummy or daddy, mummy or daddy, the boy next door has asked me if I can go over and play. Is that okay with you? If a 21-year-old kid who's returned from uni comes up to his mummy and daddy says, mummy and daddy, the boy next door says, can I come and play? Is that all right with you if I go and play? It's completely inappropriate. You know, at that point, the parents would hope the boy knows whether or not it's a good idea to go and play with the boy next door and whether or not that's okay. You get the point. This is what Jesus, this is the way God works with us. And that we can have this false picture of God in our life that he is like a dictator who's saying, go left, go right, take this turn, don't take that turn. And if we jump off the path, he's going to scold us or he's going to abandon us or he's going to give up on us. It's not what the Lord is like. He is so kind. He loves us and he wants to invest in us in such a way 
way that we become good decision makers. Um, so I hope that's helpful if you get caught up on some of these things about what is God's best. Five minutes, Jamie's just keeping me to time. Hurry it up, Kath. Um, okay, let's just rattle through some of the other ones really quickly. Next one, what if things don't work out? What if this fails? So what if I make this decision and then it all goes to pot, it all goes wrong? Fear behind this essentially says failure is the end or it's the end of the road. And also failure would feel unbearable. It would be unbearable. I wouldn't be able to bear it. And, and the root of this, it can come from all sorts of things, I think. Maybe from shameful experiences of failure in the past where the people around you haven't handled that well and haven't walked you through it particularly well. Um, it also could be from cultural narratives around success and failure, some of the things that probably Jamie's touched on. But again, here's the truth to tackle this one. The God we see in the Bible has a track record of bringing beauty and redemption out of even the worst mistakes and failures. And he's like not the God of the second chance. He's the God of like the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh. Like just look at Israel's story. He never gives up on them. They mess up again and again and again. But God never gives up on them. There's a friend of mine who's got a friend who's a nun um, who once said this, and this is a nun, so this is a quote, so forgive me if you're offended by it, but she said that God has this amazing habit of taking the shit of our lives and turning it into the richest manure. Um, <laughs> and by which this nun, this holy woman, she said it, not me, so if you're offended, you can take it up with the nun. Um, but, yeah, um, but... But the point is this, like the, the worst moments, even what we feel like are the worst moments in our lives, failure can feel like one of the worst, most demoralizing, discouraging moments. That can be fertile ground for the Lord if we will offer it to him and we'll bring it to him. And not only that, it's an amazing um, platform for intimacy with God as well. Gosh, the moments where I feel like, um, you know, do I feel close to the Lord when things are going well and everything's great? Yeah, in a way. Do I feel close to the Lord when I'm at my rock bottom and like, everything's going wrong oh my goodness it's like failure can be like a gateway to intimacy with the lord so failure far from being unbearable at times can be a gateway to intimacy next one what if make this is a good one what if in making this one decision i miss out on something better what is the fear here FOMO, my friends, the fear here is FOMO. Um, where has it come from? Cultural narratives that we can have it all. We're so used to looking at all these different options all the time. And even when you've chosen one thing, you're still surrounded and being able to look at all these other options that are available to you. You know, the truth here, every yes in your life will involve saying multiple no's to something else. That's one of the things I had to get over, honestly, with Jamie. It was like saying yes to Jamie meant I had to say no to loads of other men. Not that they were like lining up um, in, in any way, but just the sort of the, the dream men I'd had in my head. Saying yes to one type of man meant saying no to loads of others. It's the same with a job. Saying yes to one job automatically means saying no to lots of others. Um, but here's the thing. FOMO is not Christian. FOMO is not Christian. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you as well. Another translation, the message translation puts it like this. What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to be not so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Don't worry about missing out. Don't be so preoccupied with getting that you can't respond to God's giving. Now, if we are following in the way of Jesus, if we are walking in the way of Jesus, 
giving ourselves away to others rather than fixating on how can I live my best life. It's just honestly, there are some of these slogans at the moment that make my blood boil. One of them is living my best life. It's just, it's, it's not Christian <laughs> and FOMO is not Christian. It's in giving ourselves away um, that we are fulfilled. And the promise that Jesus says is, you're not going to miss out on a thing. You give yourselves away, you seek the kingdom first, you won't miss out on a thing. Um, last one then, what if I don't reach my potential? This was a big one for me as well. And the fear here is I'll be unfulfilled if I don't reach the top of my game. If I don't climb the ladder to the, the highest possible rung that I can in my career, I will somehow be unfulfilled. Again, I think this is a lie that comes from cultural narratives. And the same truth we need to use to tackle, uh, to tackle that. It, you know, it is true. There is some truth in the fact that there is a level of fulfillment that comes from using the God-given gifts and talents that he's given us. That absolutely is fulfilling. But there is a deeper level of fulfillment that is found in giving ourselves away to God and to others and that's what we're made for and that's why some of the stuff that Jamie touched on having a good theology of the place of work and vocation is so important as it speaks really deeply to that fear um, that's a whistle-stop tour through a few of those fears. I think we're coming to the end and running out of time, so we'll wind things up there. I hope some of that's helpful. And again, my hope is, like, if those aren't your what-ifs, just try and go through, like, what are your what-ifs? And use some of that framework to help you work through them. Like, what's the fear driving this? And what truth am I going to speak to that fear? Final thing as we close, here are some good questions to ask. Once those sort of what-ifs have bobbed to the service and you've dealt with them, here are some good questions to ask when you're making big life decisions. Never mind what should I do, question number one, ask the question, who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? Am I becoming more like Jesus? And will this opportunity lead me closer to him? Question number two, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? Fear is a powerful driver, but when you can silence the voice of fear and tune into the voice of faith, it's incredible the sort of decisions that you'll make. I had that with marriage. I've had that with church planting. It's like, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? I'd probably marry Jamie. What, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? I'd probably move to Liverpool. It's amazing what happens when you take fear out of the equation, how much clarity you get about the things you want to do. They've cut me off. It's time. Sorry. Um, final, final question. Um, sorry, I terrified you all. The lights are going to go off. That's like one of those moments in the cinema when someone jumps out. Um, final question. Where do my purest desires take me? We're desiring beings, uh, desiring beings, and our desires are complicated things. Um, so it's not as simple as always asking just, where do my desires take me? But if it's true what we said, God doesn't want robots. He wants to invest in us, teach us, counsel us. Then we ought to look for what are the loves, what are the desires, what are the things that God has been forming in me over time, over years, and where do those desires take me? I think if you ask those three questions when you're making a big life decision, you can't go too far wrong.